whether it's designing footwear or designed a lot of consumer electronics, just, they're sold at the sh on the shelf at Best Buy or, or Target. Um, this process is so different, right? We're, we're designing something that has to appeal to an architect or an interior designer. Uh, they specify it, right? Like it has to go through client approvals, like so many, so many levels. And we don't find out if we made a successful product till like three years later. Hello and welcome to Architecture, Design and Photography. Today we are speaking with Michael DeTullo, an industrial designer that has recently worked with Curie uh, Acoustic Tiles uh, and creating some really interesting uh, acoustic features for architectural design uh, to go in a building near you. But uh, Michael is an industrial designer with a high degree of talent and introspection into all things design. And this was an insanely interesting interview that I was really happy we got to do. This guy sat in the presence of Michael Jordan and worked with him on his shoes. So yeah, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, check it out. We had a great interview with Michael. Really, really liked it. And I bet you will too. Michael DeTullo, welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. Happy to have you here today. You have designed some stuff for um, notable companies and such, people with high regard for design. So you must have some talent, apparently. <laughs> and there's apparently designs that you've worked on behind you that I'd like to hear more about. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I just love what, what I do. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that... I, I knew I wanted to, to do this from a young age. I, I've always just been fascinated by the future and what things will be like in the future. And ah, I love working across so many industries. And, and for me, I've never been one to specialize. So I feel really fortunate that I've been able to craft a career where I can work on everything from from watches to, to electric boats. I mean, you have houses furniture shoes bikes watches yeah. computers or toaster i'm not sure what that is Shoe. oh yeah. nice big house that. a little bit of everything what is that like a the the one right to your right there is that the center console of a car in the middle yeah this is a center console for um a vintage mustang to be able to oh. adapt to have a screen uh, nice. and, and take some more high tech stuff. And then these were some, some armrest concepts. Armrest. Um, it was wow. a project I was working on for a company in LA called icon. Uh, oh, made... I love icon. Okay. They, yeah. Like the, the, um, the land cruisers that they do mm -hmm. and stuff yeah. like that. Just amazing stuff. That's awesome. So you've with... done stuff for them too. Yeah. I worked with Jonathan Ward, who's the founder there for about 12 years on a bunch of different projects. That yeah. one was for a proposal we worked on to do basically a, an icon version of a, of a bullet Mustang. So that one didn't come to fruition, wow. but we have worked on dozens of projects together. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that idea of... See, I'm, I've had this weird idea where I've continually wanted to buy cars that are about 20 years old simply because if you look in the last 20 years, you can more... I, easily identify the cars that have become slightly iconic for sure more than like making a bet on a new car 
Yeah. And there's just something about a little bit older car with the ability to say this has stood the test of time, even for just 20 years, that for some reason it, it made they're they're cheaper because they're not completely cool yet they're only 20 years old so they're basically like trash at this point but they've they've got some unique lasting quality to them that to me has always been interesting (laughs) yeah i drive a 2001 uh, audi tt quattro and um, yeah it's it's just really in the last couple years taking it places where people are like oh wow what's that because it's it's old enough to be kind of rare where a lot didn't make it right Um, but yeah, That's I don't funny. know. I kind of feel the same way. 20 years so, is, is a good amount of time. So tell me a little bit about your background and what you feel was uh, very important about your background to allow you to get to the point where you've been able to work on stuff like that. I, I think... Um, feel free to go all the way to childhood, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, Trent. I, do, I think when I was a kid, I just loved drawing things um and i used to literally come you know i was a latchkey gen x kid i'd come home from school and pop on cartoons and get out a tv tray and the old sears catalog and and which for those of you who are too young to know what that is was basically amazon but if it was a book that you get once a year <laughs> and I'd, I'd open up the sears catalog to a random page and be like oh, okay uh drills and i'd be like well, i try to think to myself i wonder what drills would be like in the future well i'm like uh, 10 years old so little did i know i'm like basically being an industrial designer before i knew what that was and when i was about 13 my my family asked me what i wanted to do when i when i grow up and i said i wanted to draw stuff from the future i just i didn't know how to describe it i just right. figured that must be somebody's job um and so a few weeks later, my dad happened upon an article about uh, Giorgio Giugiaro, who's an Italian industrial designer. And he was like, is this, is this what you want to do? And I just I lucked out that, that I, I learned so young what it, what it was. Um, wow. How, how awesome is that, that your parents were forward thinking and, and aware enough to look at what you identified with and what you were interested in and to find like a place for you to channel that into, to give you a, you know, help you with your own dream that you showed interest in. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I, I grew up about an hour and a half north of New York City, straight up the Hudson. For whatever reason, my, my high school had a ton of great classes. They, they had a, a design drawing class, which was basically, basically like industrial design. You had to do like concepts and then show people and do surveys a really good architectural drafting course. I thought I might want to go into architecture for a while. I've always just yep. been fascinated by buildings uh, and interiors and how people kind of move through spaces and live with them. So I was I was very lucky to have identified it so young, to have had a been in a school, even though it was kind of a country bumpkin school. Like our our, our you know, a lot of my friends like grew up on like apple orchards and things, but for whatever reason I had this school experience where I got to learn how to draft things, how to think about things three-dimensionally and represent them two-dimensionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in a lot of ways, I'm still just the professional version of, the, of that kid. I, I love working with <laughs> clients and understanding what makes them unique. I, I, I yeah. really try to like spend as much time as possible with them to to pull out from them what's special, that they didn't, they didn't even 
you know, they, they almost disregarded because they're too close to it. Um, I've had my own consulting practice for about five years now. And my policy is we only ever take three clients at a time because I feel like I can give hmm. about 30% of my time to each client. Um, right. So you just save 10% that. for yourself? Yeah, exactly. And any, any more than that, it gets, starts to get a little too diffuse. Is that what you do full time now is, is a independent contractor essentially for industrial design? Yeah, industrial design and as well as bleeds into brand positioning and creative direction. So mm-hmm. um, for Kire, which is the client that kind of brought us together, we right. make uh, architectural wall and ceiling systems. Um, right. I've been working with them for about three years and I work with them from everything from kind of innovation planning and product design all the way through to kind of product positioning for the marketing uh, department, branding, and then creative direct all the photo shoots and even, mm. you know, approve uh, outgoing emails and things like that. So, so are, are you telling me you get to work creatively design and create without being a full-time employee? Yeah, basically. Yeah, so I do that for about three great. clients at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So. That, okay. So how does one get into that position? Um, I, I love the, the classic uh, IDO framework of kind of like being a T-shaped person. So, you know, the deep vertical of my T is obviously industrial design. Um, mm-hmm. Right out of college, I worked for a small consulting firm that did a lot of work with Burton, Snowboards, Bose, Nike. Um, I was there for about four and a half years. Nike brought me in-house um, and I worked with worked first at Nike Sportswear, which is really interesting because you know this giant company, but Sportswear was kind of a startup at the time, you know, creating lifestyle products was like a new concept. So mm-hmm. helping to kind of scale that team up. And then I went over to the Jordan team, which was right after Ooh. Michael kind of retired. Um, wow. The, Have you been in the same room with Michael Jordan? I've spent spent much time with him, yeah. Oh, come <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, I worked right. with, with Michael, I worked with Carmela Anthony, wow. Dwayne Wade, Derek Jeter. Um, but That's my incredible. mentor at Nike was like, hey, Michael, why do you want to go to Jordan? I mean, it was doing about 500 million in sales at the time. Michael retired, it might shrink. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, John, I think it's going to grow because we're going to take Michael and turn him from a person and convert him into an idea. Yeah, an um, idea, an icon, yeah, uh, yeah. a legend. And it about doubled in size in that time to about a billion dollars. Um, and that was great because that was where I started to get, Jordan was a very small team where I could work really collaboratively with the branding group. Every year we, we redid the Jordan brand mark. So getting mm-hmm. to, I got to work on that new mark one year. Uh, I worked really closely with the marketing team. Um, I even got to the point where my, my mentor was like, hey, Michael, I want you to do like, I'm not a huge sports person, but my mentor was like, why do you, why are you so connected to, to Nike, Michael? Why do you love it? And so I, I answered his question with a video because I didn't really know how to answer it. And I, I produced this internal video about what Nike meant to me. And he was like, that's great. Let's go show it to Wyden Kennedy, the ad agency. And so I started to get this understanding that industrial designers could do a lot more than industrial design because we're kind of the first creative person in the process. So if the story kind of isn't baked in, 
from the initial onset, there's going to be kind of a disconnect. And so I saw this opportunity to kind mm. of tell one creative story from, from, as I like to say, from sketch to shelf, from, from the very seed of an idea all the way through to the marketing communications. That's a interesting thing that I think you kind of pointed out there is like you, it, it doesn't seem like you're putting on the shoes and going playing and going and playing basketball a lot, but you are insanely geeked out by the creative process and the creation and the design of, of a, a product and, and finding this, um, this story, this legend to be the creative seed towards, uh, the voice of that design essentially. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I mean, I've always been a little bit of a misfit, <laughs> so I've always loved kind of observing. And so, so for me, it was just getting to work with those athletes. It's like designing an F1 car, like right. a, a shoe after two hours of, of Michael or Carmelo Anthony playing in it is like destroyed. And so the, the amount of forces that these athletes are putting on it, those are just really interesting problems to solve. Would and, you get these shoes back after like real use? Like, yeah. all right, here's some sneakers back from game use. Now we study them, how they failed and, and improve upon that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Walk me through that a bit. That's interesting. I've never heard anything about that. That's super interesting. Well, especially at a big brand like Nike, wear testing is, is such a huge part. So before an athlete would ever, you know, before a professional athlete would ever get it, mm -hmm. there's a huge team of wear testers kind of on call to test prototypes right. and you will we'll get down to like the littlest thing of like, does a heel rub your Achilles just a little too much or do the laces right. tighten up well? Um, and then, you know, to go back into kind of the, the design process, you know, I like to say there's this, this saying that writing is rewriting and I think designing is redesigning. Right? Right. <laughs> you never just kind of like hit a home run on the first pitch. It's like, you have to put it out there have to test out your ideas, you have to have it come back. Um, and then you have to adjust from there. And I, and I think that's just always the case. You know, I, I feel very, um, I, I think maybe that's why clients enjoy working with me is I, I feel like there's a process. We're going to figure it out together. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm not one of those like dogmatic designers. It's like, it must be this down to the millimeter. To me, it's about, you know, us all working together to create the best solution possible. Right now. With working someone with someone like a, a Michael Jordan type, what's the relationship of of understanding between someone who's so deep into design like yourself that works on an aspect of the athlete's performance so intrinsic or to their performance like shoes? What is the relationship like between the you know, the end result client that represents the entire brand, like a Michael Jordan to the designer, is there a really close relationship there and a commonality of respect? Or is it more like, can you please go back and write my novel and leave me alone kind of thing? Like what's the dynamic? I think it's, it's going to be really similar to architects working with clients, right? Or you're, when yeah. an architect is designing a home for a client, some clients are going to want to be really involved. And right. some clients are just going to be like, just bring it back to me done. And there's going to be, you know, an, an infinite amount of variations in between those two poles. Sure. Um, Michael was, was super involved. Um, and, and very, he was a, he's a very product centric person. And 
super insightful. Um, hmm. Also kind of a no bullshit person as you know, if you watched the last dance, yeah. you could pretty much figure that out. He's <laughs> not going to beat around the bush or waste anyone's time. Yeah. And, and I just remember, you know, he, he liked to be talked to like a normal person. Uh, which right. is, it's, it's just really, you have to separate the fact that you're in a meeting with Michael Jordan and right. remove yourself from that and just be like, this right. is a person that whose input I need. Um, right. and I remember the first time I ever met with him, my boss, uh, Dwayne Edwards, who had designed the Jordan 21, he, Dwayne was presenting the first prototype of the 21 to him. And I mean, Michael had thought of like five things in the first 10 minutes that we hadn't even thought of. And wow. he just is very, he knows what he's doing just immersed um, completely in yeah, all of and, it. And he's been doing it a long time, you know. Other athletes were were, you know, maybe just more excited to get a signature shoe so they were not as involved in it or, you know, they just wanted to show some friends and make sure they that it looked cool. Mm-hmm. But um I'd say M- Michael was the most involved I, I ever worked with. Um really? and and it just like in a way that was once you got over the fear of it, it was super exciting because I always went to a meeting with him knowing I was going to get some awesome ideas out of him. Uh, that, that's interesting in my own work. Uh, when I work with the most demanding clients, the work mm. is, the, is the best. Right. Uh, like you just know that, all right, we're going, I'm going to shoot this piece of architecture and I know that architect is going to be extremely particular about everything. And it's going to be real pain and everything else, but it's going to be the best work you do. And I, I always said, I kind of say that to the designers that work with me, like, this is not always going to be fun, but we're going to make the best work of your life. And, yeah. and um, you know, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'm a, a mean boss, but I need stretch of the imagination, but I certainly have a standard. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, that can be hard to deal with. <laughs> so. hmm. Now, how do you approach, like, do you have a standard approach to a design problem, no matter what it is? Is there like some method that you employ to approach and find the heart of the problem that you're trying to solve? I actually, I find that what keeps me, so I've been doing this for going on 25 years and I feel like what keeps me interested is not having an approach. So I, I know kind of in general what has worked in the past, like every project I worked on, there's maybe been something analogous that I could pull from in terms of process. Mm-hmm. But I, I try to make sure that I spend enough time with the client up front to, to tailor a process to them because everybody needs something totally different. Like we've done a lot of work for Hasbro, for the Transformers line. And you know Hasbro is like this machine that's set up to make toys, right? So right. All they need from us are some really cool ideas, and literally they'll take rough sketches and and some some roughly laid out orthographics, and six months later they're like, yeah, the toys on the shelf, because <laughs> that's all they need because that 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 client is set up that way. But when you do something like that, are you, do you go and like get thirty kids in a room and watch them play and see what they gravitate to, or are you just making toys up that you wish you had as a kid? Yeah, I think the scope of that engagement is just totally different. It's just literally like sometimes a two-line brief and, you know, firing back some ideas and seeing what they'll run with internally. Um, wow. Versus a, a client like Kire where they which where they want me to be involved with everything from, you know, the product brief 
all, all the right. way through to setting up the photo shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like both ends of that spectrum. Like I, I call it like snacks and meals, you know, so, right. some projects are, are snacks. Um, my work with, with Cure is definitely more of a meal, might be several, several meals. Um, right. and, and, and added to that, the added challenge of designing products for designers, right? Like we're, I'm trying mm. to design a product that in, in, instead of designing something that's done, like designing this watch behind me, um, that's, you know, you purchase it, it's done. I'm trying to design a product that architects oh. can have fun with and, and right. manipulate and reshape for each one of their projects. And so right. there's like an added layer of, of um, you know, you know, as a creative, you're, you're going to give this to another creative. So you're designing a, a building block essentially at that point. Yeah. So you have to show them enough, right? You have to show them, well, here's some ways that building block can be deployed mm-hmm. uh, enough to get excited, but not so much that they're like, this is all I can do. Um, right. And I love that. I mean, that's been a huge challenge. Um, also, you know, in the past, like I've, you know, whether it's designing footwear or designed a lot of consumer electronics, you know, just they're sold at the sh- on the shelf at Best Buy or, or Target. Um, this process is so different, right? Where we're designing something um, that has to appeal to an architect or an interior designer. Uh, right. They specify it, right? Like it has to go through client approvals, like so many, so many levels. And we don't find out if we made a successful product till like three years mm-hmm. later when all the, right. all of a sudden there's a bunch of orders coming. There, There's a interesting relationship here between uh, what you do and photography. Mm-hmm. Um, when I shoot for an architect, I'm, I'm, sh- this is interesting. Uh, when I shoot for an architect, I'm making sure that I kind of approach it like I'm building a building block, I think. And let me explain. Like if someone looks at an architectural photo that I've done, and I've said this a lot on this, so sorry, anyone who actually watches these. Um, if, if I produce a photograph of a work of architecture and someone says, what a great photograph i've failed Mm. if they say what an incredible piece of architecture i've succeeded and that's a there's a distinction there am i trying to draw attention to me or am i facilitating someone else to show what they've created so it's a little like how you're designing the ceiling tiles to go on to express something further you're building a building block right um and interestingly, like my end client being more discerning and needing me to, to be a little bit less of a solo act in their presentation. Like I need to not want to sing a solo in front of everybody with my photograph. I need to be part of the choir, which is the entire brand and marketing of the architectural agency representing their work not putting me out there to sing as a solo artist showing off this, you know, all these tricks that I did with photography to make, you know, it's a different thing. But then like if you're um, if you're doing something like senior pictures or wedding photography, the end client can be very discerning and you can get paid a lot of money for those things and you can make a great living at it. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. But all of your people who are starting out target those markets because you can do exactly what you want to do and you'll find less of a discerning eye on the receiving end your clients 
they just need stuff that looks cool for their wedding essentially there's more of a market for it so when when i'm shooting something like that which i don't really shoot anything like that anymore but if you're shooting for a wedding client it's it's a it's more open-ended and Mm -hmm. you get to be a little more expressive Whereas when you're shooting for a design client, you're limited, I think. I personally limit myself more in, in that presentation of what I do. I, I think there's a little bit of an overlap of connectivity in, in how you approach a project there. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the architectural client has a clear message, right? They have a clear right. story they want to tell about the structure. Right. Where, you know, as in, a, in an event photograph, photography, right, they just they want to document and then they right. probably want some kind of arty shots to like, you know, make right. the memory uh, a little glossy, right? So right, they're looking for that emotional feel to be translated through the right. images, and I, there, I think there's far more of an emotional feel of, of being at that event expressed through the photographer, where an architectural photographer has to be a little more experiencing or has to express the experience of going through this very. Um, designed and and in many ways silent environment it's kind of weird but yeah no, and and I, I think similarly in in industrial design and what i do when you look at a piece of footwear like this mm-hmm. um you know that can be incredibly expressive right it's on it's on the human body um most people have more than one pair of shoes there's a lot more risks that can 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 occur with this product that is so personal right like a shoe or a watch in a car to some degree, right? Even though that's a shared object, it's still very personally expressive. Uh, and then as you kind of step out from the individual to things like, you know, a television is like an example of a very shared product, right? Like that's the whole household mm. shares that. Um, and, and the message is kind of what's on the screen, not, not the device itself or, you know, a piece of architecture, which can be incredibly expressive, but hopefully also out, outlives you know this one generation of people using it so it has to kind of have a timelessness to it Uh, and then you get to a a piece of commercial architecture where there would be hundreds or thousands of people using that architecture every day and that thousand people might be a different thousand people next year than it is today so i think as a creative you just have to think of things and in a different way right of who right who, who is who is it for and what is the intended purpose um and so How- so for me you know that pro- that part of the process um the thought process is, is always the same it's that kind of curiosity um being open and for me i just i try to put put my ego aside as, as much as possible it's still it's still there <laughs> mm-hmm. but but I, but I try to just really listen to the project and understand what it wants right now the, the the psychology of an individual that works creatively is something that really interests me that I'm I'm trying to understand more just to understand myself more too. Um, someone like yourself, uh, in what you do, you have to go into chaos. You have to identify where is there not order that we want order, and you have to be open to that. And you have to go somehow interact with all the potential of what that thing could be. And then you have to turn it into something through your hand and a pencil and some paper or computer, and you know, and then mm-hmm. you have to bring it back and say, here's something that I think is going to work well for you of 
further concrete utility out of the abstract. Um, how, how much of your own personal life are you very uh, open in your approach to? And I'm not saying, tell me about your, you know, like, but open in, as in like, you know, um, as, as a political statement, people who are open to how the politics and running of a country and society those type of people have openness in that respect. While someone can be politically conservative, but still be very open and creative when they approach design. Now, interestingly, a lot of times, if you're open and working as a creative, it, it does many times mean that you will also identify politically in the same manner. Um, and, I, and I wonder that the... Uh, what, what are the people doing that identify as more conservative politically? What do they do for jobs typically and, and back and forth? And, but the, the psychology of going into that chaos, bringing something out of further order, how much do you understand of your own personality that plays a beneficial role in that? And also, what are the, the things in your personality that you have to take charge of and actually... Uh, control a bit more because they're not conducive to being a good designer. Like I, I know I have aspects of my own life that I have to look at and say, this isn't the best for that. So I'm going to have to work on that to be better at this. Like, how do you, how do you work your, your life and your own internal existence in relation to what you do? Yeah. I, I think my, my biggest strength is I'm someone who kind of always likes to move forward mm -hmm. and, um, as one of my mentors used to always say, Michael, at a certain point, you have to take it from what it can be to what it will be. Mm -hmm. And and I've just always been that person who loves to just jump into the deep end of ambiguity. I look for ambiguity. That's where like the coolest uh, opportunities are when mm. people don't know what to do. Right. Uh, I try to jump into that and quickly start moving through it to help define what it will be. And mm -hmm. You know, this this can be really painful for clients, right? They 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 get a lot of you know analysis paralysis. Those those people that tend to be um, maybe a little more conservatively minded, a little bit more focused on things like metrics and measurables. It's sure. like at some at some point you have to just look at all the data and we have to make our best intuitive guess. And guess is, is a terrible word, but you know I think of of intuition is the the multiplicative effect of skill times experience, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I have a high skill level. I also have 25 years of experience. I can multiply those two things together to move a project forward. Right. And sometimes, you know, a client can be, you know, very scared. Uh, and if I'm doing my job right, they, they should be scared. You know, I remember presenting work to a client and he was like, you know, Michael, I, I've just, I've never seen anything like this before. And, and I was like, Hey, put an ex put an exclamation mark at the end of that statement. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, instead of saying, I've never seen anything like this before with fear, say it, exclaim it. Wow. And he's like, yeah. I've never seen anything like this before. I'm like, right. That's what you paid me for. If I brought you a bunch <laughs> of things, you had did you actually before, say that in that instance? Yeah. yeah. Good job. And I was like, if, if I had brought you a bunch of things you had already seen, you should fire me. Why, why would you pay someone my rates for things that just made you feel good and comfortable? I want to show you what your industry can be. 
I'm going to push you towards that so that you can be an industry leader. And so that's why I always frame myself as a consultant. You know, a, mm-hmm. a contractor's job is to, to do a task for you. A consultant's job ah, is to help tell yeah. you what to do. And I look at it as like, you know, if, if my client is paying me to tell, tell them what the weather is outside and uh, it's, you know, 32 degrees and sleeting, I'm not going to go tell them it's 72 degrees and sunny, no matter right. how much they might want to hear that. I have right. to tell them the hard truth. Uh, about their brand, about their their products, about their capabilities, because I have to consider all those things when I'm when I'm pitching solutions, right? Like I might right. be pitching a what might be a great solution for the marketplace or for the end user, but if the client doesn't have the capability to to execute it, well, what am I doing? You know, it's it's not right. a good solution for you're, them. You're essentially making statements that are un unable to be substantiated. Uh, that you're saying this will be great. Here's my representation of what it's going to be. It's going to be great, but we've never seen that be great before. You've never seen this before. That's why you're paying me to come up with it. Right. So you have to have a, um, a seemingly absurd amount of self-confidence to handle yourself like that in a meeting. And I say that in a amazing way. Like that's real. That's true. And how do you get to that point of of saying there's no right or wrong answer here, but I know this is as close to right as you're going to get with me working on this, and it's good. And, and by the way, the invoice is in the mail, and you know, <laughs> uh, I, I think again, like it's a lot of just observing, observing the client, observing their market. Um, mm-hmm. With the work we curate, we we talk a lot to architects. Uh, and interior designers, we talk a lot um, to the sales reps, and so kind of building that foundation of of these different data points, um, mm. and I, I think that's the value of a of a nonlinear thinker, right? It's like, oh, I can right. take this this point of data from operations, and this point of data from sales, and this point of data from trends I see that architects, you know, how how they've been specifying things and how that's been changing, right? Like how hospitality is influencing workplace design, for example, and then Mm -hmm. take these five totally unrelated, seemingly unrelated things and be like, and here's a solution based on all five of those pillars. Um, That's almost a math problem. It's like you're taking data, true factual data points. mm -hmm. And if you can get as many as possible, it helps you connect the dots for the real picture of what you're yeah. Okay. We have to kind of, I, I love the word synthesis. You know, it's, it's like this idea of like taking all these totally different things and synthesizing mm-hmm. it together and be like, here's the thing you never thought of. Right. It came from right. all the things you told me, but right. I put it together in a way you didn't think of because I'm not as close to it. And, and I, I think right. that's part of the key as well. Like, again, thinking back on my time at Nike, I was there about eight years. The, the first three shoes I ever designed for Nike were featured in Metropolis Magazine as the future of footwear. And I, I don't think I ever replicated that again because I was, I was breaking rules that I didn't know even existed. I was like one of the shoes was inspired by, um, I was on a trip, a uh, research trip, and I was taking the, the train from, from London to Paris. 
And I saw this woman running to catch the tra train in a pair of high heels. And I was like, we should make a shoe for her. You know, that's ru she's running. She's not running a marathon, but she's running from after work in London on a Friday to catch the train to Paris for the weekend. And we should design a pair of shoes that fold up and fit in her purse and fit in a nice little bag. And I think, you know, I brought that idea back and the engineers, I think were like, this kid's nuts. But I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know enough to limit myself. And by the time I was there for eight years, I found myself just really editing down my ideas before I even pitched them. Uh, right. And I was like, this is dangerous. So I'm going to get too, I know too much of what I'm doing. Mm. Um, so did you intentionally remove yourself from a situation where you were producing good results because you knew that you were starting to fall back on a predictable method? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I mean, that that being comfortable in ambiguity. Well, yeah. I wasn't in ambiguity anymore. And so I was now becoming uncomfortable because things were getting too predictable. Right. And so, you know, I left Nike um, to be creative wow. director of a firm called Frog Design in San Francisco. Um, Frog Design designed the original Apple Macintosh. They designed the original Sony Walkman. Oh, wow. Did a ton of work for Google, Motorola, Intel, really got steeped into consumer electronics, which couldn't be more different than, mm -hmm. than footwear. Uh, and eventually went in-house to a, a large conglomerate that owns six or seven different audio brands. Um, and, and there I started putting together all these different things. The first speaker I did for that brand uh, was this AirPlay speaker, but uh, instead of looking like a black brick like everything else the top was a uh, pressure formed piece of uh, laminated mahogany with a white grill and um and kind of brass buttons and i remember presenting it to best buy and they're like this doesn't look like anything else in the store i'm like no but it looks like a lot of things in your home because this isn't about mm. creating a black rectangle that sits on a shelf at best buy Best the, the final resting place for this this device isn't a store shelf. The final resting place for this device is someone's living room next mm -hmm. to a, an Eames Barca lounger and a nice shelf and a coffee table and a beautiful rug. And that, That's, this, it, it didn't this, end up like that little thing behind you to your left at all, did it? It is a little, it does look like that a little bit. Uh, I'll yeah. send you a picture of it. It was called the Polk Woodburn. Oh, Polk and audio just, is nice stuff. Yeah. And it was just, I felt like, um, you know, understanding that this device had to earn the right to be in your living room, right? Mm. It's a, a $700 device right. uh, and it couldn't look like a, a glossy black brick, you know? Hmm. How much, how much of your thought process and opinion goes into actually pricing out an end product or does the consumer come or the client come to you and say, we're looking to develop a speaker at this price point kind of thing? It, it depends, you know, it totally depends on the client and the project. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's really important to hit a price point, right? We were like, Hey, this is, you know, we're trying to create an $80 product. Uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes the, the client is saying we need a flagship. We need something that is going to totally push our industry. And so we'll price it later. You know? Right. Um, an interesting thing to me that I've seen is like the um, the evolution of Kia. Mm -hmm. Kia was crap. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, their cars are like, wait, what's that? You know, it's like, whoa, 
there, there's a Kia badge on that. What's going on? And it's like I, the car manufacturers seem to understand this to some degree where they'll stagnate to the point of irrelevance. And they're forced to this point of saying, all right, now we've got to reimagine our design process. And it's still four wheels, four doors, a trunk, a hood. Boring as anything, but they they reinvent it. And, and it's like all of a sudden they invest in the, the, the creativity and the concept of someone seemingly outside of their market to come in and change the whole thing. And it becomes this like, before it was like, ew, I don't want to get any of that Kia on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, that's pretty nice, actually. You know, it's it's really interesting to me to see that, that um, the value of that, even in our marketplace, that that they, they establish something, they go with it far enough until it doesn't work. And then it forces them to like, all right, we have to update and we have to get creative here. I wonder why yeah. brands don't do that all the time like what's the psychology of not doing that all the time it's this like you were saying i guess i think brands get comfortable and they stagnate to the point of failure and then they have to be revamped so you saw yourself stagnating at like nike the best you know like incredible and you're like well i've got to move on even though i'm you know assumably very well paid and doing great and doing having access to people like michael stinky jordan (laughs) And then you're like, no, I don't want to stagnate. Sorry, see you guys. I think it's also incredibly human driven, you know. So Peter Schreier, who used to be head of design of the Volkswagen Group through the '80s, '90s, early 2000s, so he was mm-hmm. head of design at Volkswagen, Audi, you know, Bugatti. Um, you know, he had this 20 year plan for Audi because the same you know, Audi in the '80s was kind of a garbage brand, right? A Audi 5000, yeah. nobody wanted that. But he had this really long-term plan that basically culminated in the early 2000s, you know, TT, A4, A6, mm-hmm. beautiful design language. That brand became, you know, the number three, you know, luxury German auto brand, right? It's like BMW and Mercedes were the two. And then it was all of a sudden it was BMW, Mercedes, Audi. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Peter left after I think 25 years plus at Volkswagen where, where did he go to become chief design officer? He could have probably gone to Ferrari or any, any huge, amazing brand. He went to Kia and, and, Oh, you know, and that's why they're incredible now. What what took him 20 years at Volkswagen Audi took him five years at Kia. That's amazing. Uh, and so you, I mean, and, and I remember with the first products, uh, that he, his team worked on, um, that came out of Kia. Um, I'm forgetting the name of their, they're kind of like mid-level sedan, but I was just like, wow, that's really nice. And then the Kia Stinger came out. The Stinger, yeah. I remember saying to friends, I'm like, Kia is the new, that's the new Volkswagen Audi group. And they're like, no, I would never buy a Stinger. I would never buy a Kia. Three years later, they're like, yeah, I think I'll buy a Kia. So it doesn't doesn't take that long because eventually there's a lot of, you know, there's there's some resistance, right? Perception lags reality. Uh, yeah. I learned that early in my career working on watches for Timex that were too progressive for that brand. Um, but eventually, if you stick with the strategy, the, you, the product will overcome all. Because at the end of the day, you know, after somebody decides what to buy, after they throw away the packaging, after at the end, what they live with is the end product, whether that's a building or a car or a watch. And that will 
overcome any other messages they're fed over time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was in Ojai, California, probably four or five years ago. And behind the coffee shop where we were at, they were doing like a review video or something on a stinger. And that's yeah. the first one I had seen. Yeah. And like they had all the cameras and everything. And both my friend and I were like, whoa, what's that? And that was like the moment I was like, a Kia? You know, that I was like, yeah. whoa. That's really incredible that like I picked up on that. Like Kia yeah. went whoop. And yeah. you know the guy that actually made it go whoop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, look at like the amazing thing too is you think of like Ford and, and um, General Motors. are like, there's no money in sedans anymore. We're not going to make them. And then you have Kia, you're like, oh, really? Because here's a full-size 350-horsepower sedan, and it's selling. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, maybe people just wanted a sedan that they, they liked. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think Toyota, like Toyota Corolla and Camry right now, the Camry, to me, looks fairly aggressive. If they put Stinger-type performance and made like a performance package Camry, I, you know, I would, I would be like, hmm. you know, like an M3 competitor type thing. Like Toyota could do that. That'd be pretty awesome. And uh, I, you made I, me I also, go ahead. I also think like design, it's always my goal that design never tells lies. You know, and I, I think mm. one of the things I loved about working at Nike was design's job to always kind of exaggerate function. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the Nike air, Nike air predates the visible bubble. They had the, the air pocket inside shoes for mm -hmm. a long time. My mom um, had a pair of those where you could take the insole out and it was a little yeah. bluish little mm -hmm. heel cushion. But no, but nobody could see it. And so right. it cost more, didn't sell very well. And basically two guys, uh, Tinker Hatfield, who designed Jordan's three through 15 and Mark Parker, who ended up becoming CEO of the company, they were both basically entry-level employees at the time. They're like, why don't we make the air thing visible? <laughs> and right. so I love this idea of, you know, taking what is functional and exaggerating Showing it to it the off. point where it becomes a design story. Um, yeah. And so that's what I try to do with, with Kire. Like, instead of hiding the architectural panels, I want to make them something that an architect is like, let's make this a showcase. Let's, right. this, this, these panels are so cool. These baffles, um, these ceiling clouds, like we can actually make this a part of supporting our theme versus, oh God, we got to like stuff these things in there and hide them. And right. so, you know, it's, it's my goal to really uh, accentuate function to the point where it becomes kind of an artistic expression. Um, right. And you can create something instead of being like, oh, that stuff, you could make people be like, what is that? That is so right. cool. Like, oh, actually so, it improves so the acoustics. <laughs> this might, I might be sticking my foot in my mouth and doing a faux pas here, but I had recently shot uh, an office space that incorporated these acoustic ceiling tiles that mm -hmm. they're just a, a curve, but in and of themselves, they almost look like the profile of a bird. Okay. And I don't know if those are the brand that you were working with or not, but it's like, pronounced when you look at them it looks like a flock of flying birds almost oh, cool. but they've got this nice it's really thick felt and they're curved to look like wings and a body essentially but it's a very very simple form mimicry but not like in a triangular way or anything else but it's just kind of like it's a moment where you're like oh funk like even the shape is functional because it distributes the audio quality and everything else and really yeah. cool and I'm, I'm sure very similar to the other thing if not from that company um i had a question uh what distinguishes uh bad design for you like 
what are what are when you look at something and you're like oh they had an untalented designer what are the the cues like to to see hmm yeah bad like I can pick that out for architectural photography because I mm-hmm. I'm doing it all the time. I know you've got to be able to pick it out, but I know you probably don't want to shame people either. But yeah, knowing why things don't work tells you about how to do it right, how to spot it, and how to grow. It, yeah, like how do you identify bad design? And it's it's a curse, right? I mean, I remember once I was in a coffee shop uh, with my wife Christina, and you know I was just looking around. And she's like, what's wrong? Do we need to go? And I was just like, yeah, like those three lights are all different temperatures. Those two yep. panels don't fit. Why these chairs don't match the theme? Like, I just can't even be in here right now. <laughs> you know, like, And so it's a real curse sometimes to have that eye because you're like, oh God, there's like 10 mistakes too many in here for me to be here. Um, right. for, for me, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of design that is just, non-memorable and to me that's almost mm. the worse than bad design like at least when somebody tries and spectacularly fails you're like well they tried right. but it's kind of the stuff that's just so safe that's just like uh like you know to me it's, it's just a lack of conviction um that really kills me um like there's an opportunity th- and you didn't take it yeah no. yeah exactly and and to me i, I think you know, bad design, quote unquote, bad design is, is often when something just doesn't quite fit. Like someone didn't really understand the situation. Um, you see a lot of like what I, what sometimes people call over-designed, you know, things that are very busy. Mm. Uh, I think of it, there's that, that old saying like, sorry, sorry, my letter was so long. I didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah, that's I, a Mark, I, think, I think that's a Mark Twain saying. Yeah, I believe so. And so I think, really really good design or maybe the difference between good and great design is just having that time to really look at it and be like is everything here really need to be here can i take something away am i missing something Hmm. Uh, am i missing an opportunity and and honestly that just takes time right do you work in a reductive process sometimes because like when i'm setting up a scene to shoot i'll start from the most simplistic one point perspective Mm-hmm. And if it's great, we stay there and then we start eliminating things from the scene until it feels empty. Mm-hmm. And then once it feels empty, then we just barely start to add things back in to make it feel right. Um, if the one point doesn't work, we break it a little bit, go here or there. Um, do, do you work in a reductive manner with design? And how do you do that when you're only sketching ideas at first, right? I do, and, and it's just by just developing a lot of options. And then uh, and then I, I also try to honestly like leave room. So, you know, the development process for a product is, is long. T- typically at least a year, sometimes two or three years, depending on the product. And you know in that development process, like things are gonna come up that you didn't think of. Like, oh, we can't make it that way. We need to do this or what have you. Um, and so I try to, leave the product like one notch simpler than maybe I know it will be knowing that as we work through the process, things will come up where when we need to add a part line or a second material or, Mm. you know, oh, actually there needs to be a track on this baffle uh, to get it to install right. Uh, Right. And so it will kind of come up to the level of detail that it needs to throughout the process. Um, 
And I think a lot of that just comes from experience, <laughs> just go, you know, working through at this point, thousands of products to production um, and understanding like there's going to be kind of some, some natural levels of complication that happens. Let's put it right. this way. It's probably not going to get simpler <laughs> in the process. Right. right. So, so you're, yeah, in your industry, you're to relate it to the industry that I most know, um, you're the designer and then you send it off to the builder or the factory essentially right. to like, how can this be made? Well, this mm -hmm. idiot designer thought you could do this and we're going to do it this because there's always this, right. this not disconnect, but this the conflict tension. between yeah. the designer having an idealized idea of this home and then the builder like, you can't build it that way. Well, mm -hmm. no, you, you can. Here's the drawings. You can do it. And, and there's always that tension of why are we even doing it this way? That's, I think, in the building industry, sometimes a little harder to communicate because your your whole project depends on sometimes one single person's budget, whereas yes. what you're doing is multiplied across potentially millions of units, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a different thing, but. which is scary because you know in in my business the biggest barrier is tooling, right? You have to create mm -hmm. a tool that makes the product, and that tool can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes a million dollars. And so right. if the client is like, well, we can't amortize that tool over X amount of widgets, it's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> um, so giving them that confidence. Uh, but yeah, it's very similar. And and like an architect working with builders, you know, I, I like to bring in, in our case, manufacturing, right? Contra whether that's a contract manufacturer for the client or in-house manufacturer. I like to work with those people in the process as much as possible so that when we're reviewing ideas, I get their, their buy-in at least mm -hmm. enough that like, Hey, you were in the room when this was approved, right. you had your chance to speak out or so you have you know, a representative objections. from the no. manufacturer, kind of right. like in, in design meetings, you'd have a rep from the builder and right. Yeah. Okay. And, and Hey, like, please voice your objections. Cause we'll design for them. But right. if you don't voice them, I can't, I can't design. For, I can't, right. I can't know. The, the process, the manufacturing process or the building process as intimately as you do. That's that's your job. So right. so I need them in the room with me. Um, and sometimes like sometimes that's where the cool ideas come from. Like sometimes it's like, oh, well, we can't build it like that, Michael, but we could do this. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And so, right. again, that that openness like you talked about that, that like ability to just be like, oh, OK, well, I hadn't thought of that. Like, what could I do with that? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, again, been doing this long enough to, to know to be, have the antennas up and listening for those moments because mm -hmm. that's where like the coolest stuff happens in my experience. Right. So my, in, in my career, I have all these kind of dream opportunities in front of me still that are kind of the ones like when it happens, I check it off. I get a little deflated after that because I accomplished something and you've just lost a dream, but you've also accomplished a dream. So there's a little like, yay. And, but there's a little bit of a downer there. It's weird, but I understand, <laughs> um, in front of you, what are the, the big hopes and dreams? It's the type of thing you could design and bring into the world essentially. Yeah. Sometimes I get excited by the seemingly most mundane things. I worked on a, uh, an RFP for um, for San Francisco to, to redesign the traffic meters. And 
somebody I was working with is like, Michael, why are you so excited about this traffic meter? You know, what like is a, a traffic meter? Like a parking parking meter. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Curry, sorry. Yeah. So I was like, he's like, why are you so excited about these parking meters? And like, cause it's so like, this could be everywhere all over this whole city. Like how right. cool is that? And if we do it right, we'll have created this object that adds to the landscape of San Francisco. Right. Uh, and if we do it wrong, we'll create it this thing that everybody hates. <laughs> so right. that's exciting to me, even though it's this very, simple object um yeah and it's a thing that most everyone is not going to want to interact with so the true. um the the bar is extremely high and you you've obviously been very successful at jumping over these bars so with the like here's a thing that no one wants to interact with can i make it something that improves someone's day just through the design and weirdness and fun and that yeah that's a really hard challenge yeah. there <laughs> i remember one of my my favorite shoes i worked on was this jordan called the t4g the train for greatness it was just a training a training shoe not a not a on-court jordan and nobody wanted to work on it i was like i'll do that i want to do that project and um my boss is like why do you want to do that project and i'm like because no one is expecting anything from it so that means i have the most opportunity to do whatever i want with it and right. I remember like five years later seeing that shoe like on somebody's street, on, on somebody's feet on the streets in Boston and being oh, wow. like, because they only made that shoe for like four months. So I'm like, that dude kept that shoe for five years and like just pulls <laughs> it out of the box every once in a while. <laughs> um, I love projects like that. Uh, for me, I think I've worked in almost every industry. Uh, I think some of the ones that I haven't worked in that I really would love to is, is furniture, doing some, some contract furniture and I have mm. so many ideas for furniture. Um, in architecture, I've done some, some conceptual architecture for a developer down in Southern California, which is really fun, mm. um, but nothing that's gotten built. So that would be, you know, I love, and that was a collaboration with an architect, which was super fun. Um, Tell me more about your ideas for furniture. And, and why you're interested in that specifically? Well, I, I think I'm fascinated by, by what I call kind of single taskers. So products that only have one function mm -hmm. um, and that function is, is fairly defined and there's almost an unlimited amount of options for that object. I think of something like perfect example is a watch, right? Like you can buy a watch for $300,000 and you can get a watch for free uh, uh, watch day at Yankee stadium, you know, like, you know, right. so, so there's literally every price point imaginable. They all tell time within one second of each other, right? Otherwise it mm -hmm. wouldn't be a watch. Uh, and yet the, the, like the market people have this kind of, um, almost unlimited appetite for, for new designs in that area. And mm. so things like that just kind of fascinate me more, more the psychology of them. And I think right. chairs, fit into that category like we don't we don't need any new chairs you know like er, there's a great a lot of great chair options but yet every year you know, herman miller and Steelcase and you know every you know residential brand launches new chairs and and we want them so i'm fascinated by the the psychology behind that uh, and right. and of course there's always functional improvements you can make there's always new manufacturing techniques you could riff off of but that doesn't explain the illogical desire for a beautiful chair. Uh, so what chairs do you have at your dining room and in your living room? Which ones have um, you chosen? Yeah, yeah. So it, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I hate to be like 
incredibly predictable, but my dining room, I can look over towards it is, uh, you know, you've got some Herman Millers there probably. Yeah. Six, uh, Eiffel, uh, Eames shell chairs. Um, (laughs) for my sofa, I had this, uh, one of my classmates from, I went to Rhode Island school design. One of my classmates, Nick, um, it's yeah, he, uh, he designed a, a sofa for uh, design within reach that I have, which okay. is one of the few new sofas you could find that have like a beautiful back. Cause it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a sofa that's not against a wall, you want the yeah. back to be yeah. beautiful. Um, yeah, I'm sitting in a, a steel case, yeah. uh, series two chair or series one actually. Um, so yeah, I think as a designer, it, it, I think of the same as like when I'm going out to eat too, it's like, if I'm doing any kind of interaction where I'm consuming something from another creative, I want to think about it as much as I would hope someone would think about the things that I'm designing. So Mm -hmm. luckily my wife's been with me for, since I was 19. So for a long time, uh, she knows like if we need a new spatula, this is like an event, it's going to take time. (laughs) You know, right. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, do, do you think that, people actually want to be thinking about what they're using while they're using it. You do. Yeah. I don't, I, I think that I, I think that they don't want to be thinking about it consciously. Right. But I I think, um, there's a lot of subconscious things that people absorb all the time Mm -hmm. and, you know, they might not understand, like we talked about the coffee shop that had different temperature lights. Well, a normal person, quote unquote normal, uh, uh, might not observe the different temperatures of the lighting. They right. just might not feel right in there to them. They might not right. know why right. they don't right. articulate it. And so in a weird way, good design in that scenario where the lighting was all the same temperature, the chairs matched the space, the, the construction quality was better, would have been more invisible, right? Uh, like a good haircut, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it would have made maybe just the whole experience a bit more pleasurable. People and that's, will subconsciously gravitate towards those experiences while not knowing exactly why, maybe. Yeah. And so that's that's my my goals are kind of two part. Like, can I do something that facilitates a little bit more joy in somebody's life? Right. Mm-hmm. Whether whether they're aware of it or not, maybe it's just doing its job modestly and and they're going about living their life with their family. And then secondly, you know, how can I put kind of the values of our culture into a, an object to create an artifact, right? Because that's that's basically our, our job. Like the, mm. the architects, the buildings that architects are designing, the products I'm designing, the images that you're taking are artifacts that some future generation is going to look back on and be like, this is what these people cared about. Uh, that's interesting. I haven't really realized it in that way that we are with everything we do, we're putting into those things, the values of our culture. That's interesting. Yeah, whether we mean to or not, right? And I think it's like you go to like the Egyptian art floor at the Met in New York and you know, it, most of the things on that floor are everyday objects from that, mm-hmm. those, that time. And so, right. you know, our everyday objects, you know, this, this pen or what have you, will we'll take on the same meaning to future generations. And I'm not, not right. trying to be like, put us spot on a pedestal or anything as creators. I'm just trying to be aware of it. <laughs> right. I mean, you're a, you're a translator, essentially. Mm-hmm. You're translating the, 
the values of our culture into the products of now. And that it's what we'll leave behind that people will decipher the values and meaning of our culture and, and everything else by sifting through these products we leave behind essentially. Because if you look yeah. at you know everything from Egypt that you'd have, it seems like almost everything they have just relates constantly to this more mystical kind of thing surrounding Egypt, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this spatula, you know, has the God of Horus or something carved <laughs> on it. Yeah. It means, you know. Yeah. And w- what is being said by our things, the things we surround ourselves with, what is being said by that, that we're just completely profit driven or that we're completely survival driven or that we're just like have we lost the view of the mystical and none of that makes it onto our spatulas anymore you know mm-hmm. but what what are we saying with all those choices that we make what are the ideals and thoughts that are brought into those products you think and i think we're going to do that whether we mean to or not, you know, as a creative right. person, you can't help if you're a musician, you can't help but respond to the other music that's happening around you. Right. And so I think we might as well do it with intention and and be thinking about that um, a little bit, right? Like there's been, you look at like the overall driving aesthetic over the decades, it's hard to see when you're in it, right? But you can, you can, you can, put together a narrative around the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, based on the aesthetics of that time. And then the drive towards minimalism in the two thousands. And you're like, okay, what was happening? It's like, well, people mm. were shifting to more of these digital lives. Physical objects were becoming simpler, right? The more complex and crazy the world is getting, there's this desire for, for quiet, uh, visual quiet. Um, mm. yeah. And so then you're like, well, how do I then like chart that forward? Right. From, Memphis in the 80s to all the crazy deconstruction that was going on in the 90s to this quiet minimalism in the 2000s. Well, I know it's going to keep changing because it's that that's the only thing I could be certain of is that it will continue to change. Um, But how can I connect the dots to predict the future a little bit? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting one that you have a lot more insight on it than I do. I'm left with no comment. <laughs> I think we're going to, I think there's going to be this, especially coming out of this pandemic. Um, I think this, I call it this kind of push for coziness uh, or mm-hmm. the friendly future, like, like the future has become really scary. Um, and so I think there's this desire to create these, these cocoons, right? We talk, we've been, we've all been working in these kind of home office situations for two years. And now I'm going to have to go back to an open plan, echoey office. Like, nah, like I mm. want, like, I want to have, I want it to feel like home. I want to be comfortable. I want to feel right. safe. Um, this kind of, I've heard it called the aesthetics of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the, I don't think that, you know, white minimalism fits that. Right. right. So uh, I think we're going to be seeing, I think we're already living through a shift um, to this kind of softer, more friendly right. space. That it's interesting that uh, we live in these times that are, um, you know, they feel scary uh, because of the, like the political situation, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't ever 
have said like back in the 80s or even early 90s about our own country you would have watched elections in other countries and thought glad we don't have to go through that and now we're yes. looking at our own country like what has gone wrong here um that's uh that's an interesting one um another question or uh realization that i had from something you're saying is creative and artist uh are similar but um artist has more of a personal expression within their creativity um and i wonder do do good artists uh miss their time in history where they could have been an incredible artist but simply what they personally focused on or were going through did not necessarily tap into the collective experience at that time so they could have been influential essentially on the same level as a Van Gogh or whatever, mm-hmm. but the what they were going through wasn't common in that time frame. So they had the ability to express and everything else, and they were saying something authentic and doing it well, but it wasn't touching the nerve of what was going on in the society at the time. So it just wasn't received. And I wonder if we come across those type of artists after the fact and then bring them into our current culture sometimes as well. I think that happens all the time with creatives, you know, across the spectrum where you see something and you're like, oh, there's a kernel there, but it's not, it's not there yet. It's not ready. Mm-hmm. The world's mm-hmm. not ready for that yet. And right. I think the history is, is littered with, you know, geniuses that were ahead of their time that saw something a, a little too early and maybe just didn't know how to make, make it quite relevant for the time they were living in. And mm-hmm. Van Gogh is you know, a great example of that, right? He wasn't, wasn't famous till after he passed. Right. Um, and I, and I think it's as a, as a designer, part of our job is to consider that like, okay, like I hopefully see where I have a sense of where this is all going, but I might need to pull it back a little bit so that it's, it's ready to, to be deployed now because, um, at the end of the day, if I'm not making something that people relate to, that people enjoy, um, you know, what am I doing? I'm that's, that's, you know, that's my job, you know? Right. I I remember one of my, my, my best days as a designer, I was on the BART train in San Francisco and, you know, my wife was like, why are you being all weird right now? And I was like this, there's six dudes on this train wearing shoes I designed. Um, (laughs) And so for me, how were you acting? Like what did she pick up on? I was just looking around, you know, like (laughs) she, she really picks up on, she knows she has a special monkey on her team yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very different than most everyone in the world. Yeah. And she sees that and, and she, cause like, cause you mentioned like you were in a coffee right. shop and she's she like, <laughs> Oh, you're, you're having one of your moments, aren't you? Yeah. Like I can't this stuff, man. And yeah. And then on the, tr- that's really interesting as a, on a personal level. That's, yeah. that's interesting to see. But to me, that's, that's better than any design award. Right. That's yeah. better than that's better than anything else. It's just right. seeing people enjoy the things we work on in our mm-hmm. time, and we're very very fortunate. Did um, you say anything to the people wearing your no, shoes? No, no. Do I you never ever? Do. No. Why not? Because I just quietly, I just am just enjoying that moment. You know, and yeah. that's happened to me many times. You know, I remember yeah. dropping my car off at the mechanic once, and the mechanic is wearing a watch I designed, and just being like. Huh. That's cool. You know, out of all a world full of watches, yeah, he yeah. picked one that I designed, and and uh, 
um, that's just the best. I just, and I, I don't want to ruin it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to like sully it with like my ego getting into that moment. I just, right. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's insightful and wise and, uh, interesting. <laughs> wow. Um, I had something else I was going to ask you that was interesting, but then I got sidetracked and chased a squirrel, a mental <laughs> squirrel. Um, let's see if I can remember it. If I try and remember it, it runs further away. That's weird. I know. I know what you mean. Slippery. <laughs> Slippery mental slope. Um, so, I mean, we've been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes, which is a good stretch for normal people, but uh, you're not exactly normal in your, in your talent level. So, um, <laughs> uh, pulling away from all this, uh, what, um, what, what complexities do you have in your life you think because of your abilities? I, I can spot complexities and difficulties in my life that arise because I was not aware of the the flip side of what talent I do have. Mm -hmm. Have you found like the flip side of your skill? It, it leaves you shortchanged or like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I think I've, I've learned to have a simple life. Um, it's uh, I think it's Oscar Wilde saying that he said that he he likes to hang out with he said he liked to hang out with bad poets because they lead the lives that you think interesting poets lead, and uh, <laughs> I think the same of kind of like good designers you know, or at least in my case is true. Like, um, you you I just offended a bunch of your friends right now. I know, <laughs> but you know I like to I mean I like nice things I like to travel, um, but um, you know mostly my life is just about. You know, just having great moments with my wife and and our dog and our our extended family, my my nephew, my brother, my sister in law, yeah. um, and and you know I, I like as I like to say I save the creativity for the clients. Like you know I don't dress right. all wacky or you know it's just like I, I think I probably would just look like a normal you know geek chic nerdy dude. <laughs> walking down the street of Portland, uh, right. drinking overpriced coffee, uh, like everybody else. And so, but I kind of pride myself on that. I want to be a little bit invisible and then I want my work to speak. Right. Um, but I think it took me a long time to get there. Uh, I feel like when I was, I was working corporate prior to setting up my own practice, uh, five years ago, um, when I was chief design officer, like I couldn't have enough fancy watches or, fast cars and what have you. But as soon as I started my own practice, I just like didn't need any of that stuff anymore. Cause I hmm. was just, just so fulfilled in my work and just yeah. chasing that, that, that occupied all my thoughts. And now just, why did, why did being independently like your own deal consultant, yeah. why did that do that to you rather than being on a payroll? Um, I think I just was allowed to be the person I wanted to be, right? Like I could, I can talk to you. So the person you wanted to be wanted less material things? I guess so. I don't know. But I think the person I wanted to be was just, um, you know, I can talk to you and not worry about what I'm going to say. Or right, right. You know, I, I just had more freedom and 
as soon as I had that freedom, I had more of a sense of fulfillment. And as soon mm. as I had that sense of fulfillment, I, I chased less things. Um, so um, that, that's at least how it worked for me. You know, everybody's different. No, that's um, a really interesting point. Because I, I was just having this conversation with my wife this morning about, I, I struggle with like my own personal, like I make my living in, in a very creative manner. I'm a commercially mm-hmm. creative individual that I'm not an, I'm not an artist in what I get paid for. Um, I approach something creatively and produce an end result that is beneficial to the client that they get to use to get more business, yada, yada, yada. Um, but it is something that I cannot necessarily pass my business that I've created off to my children. Mm-hmm. It's not like an electrician or plumber right. or anything that can be done right or wrong. It's, it's this subjective observation process turned into a a thing that you can hand over to someone essentially Mm -hmm. and um teaching your children or you know inspiring others even to become self-employed to me when you said like there's a difference in you from being employed to being Mm self-employed is what you said essentially not technically right no for sure and that being self-employed, what is it about that that are it 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 um, there's a spark in someone that's self-employed that isn't in someone who's employed, but there's less of an outward spark in you as far as the flashy watch and the fast car right. and everything else. That stuff isn't there when you're self-employed. Like that's an interesting dynamic to me, and I was to get down to it i was talking to my wife about how sometimes i feel like i want to inspire my kids to absolutely be self-employed entrepreneurial because Mm -hmm. it's in my opinion much safer to know how to land on your own feet and take care of yourself rather than rely on someone else for constant you know paycheck kind of thing but then i have this conflict of well maybe they're not of the personality type to be able to do their own thing and i i'm still at that point like should i teach my children to be ruthlessly entrepreneurial regardless. Like, are we in that time where they need to be that way or can't be that way? I don't know. It's an interesting thing that when you said that, it, it kind of like, Ooh, I was just talking about this, but yeah. I, I remembered the question I was going to ask you earlier. Um, how, how do you approach art being so incredibly uh, introspective and thoughtful about seemingly everything on going on around you and why it's happening because you have to know why things are happening how people do things why they do things that you venture into that chaos and take all of that and create a solution that's a lot um and you work so intensively creative creatively like that how do you approach art someone else's expression through a creative means of their own vision like do you relate to art you think maybe differently than a standard person who's crunching just numbers or like, what do you think of that? Um, I know it's a hard one to answer. My wife's an artist. So it's, Mm. uh, you know, I, we're kind of very immersed into the art world here. And I would say most of our friends are either designers or or artists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, you know, for, for me, when, I look at art, it's a very personal thing. And, and obviously, 
Uh, I mean, I certainly have an aesthetic that I gravitate towards, right? In terms of like, I tend to gravitate towards kind of mid-century ethos in general, um, but the kind of the colors and shapes and more abstract things um, mm-hmm. that just speak to me. Um, but Why a lot you, of it is personal. Do and, you think, uh, like, I as well have no interest really in in uh, li- art that is literal in any way other like abstraction to me is very inspiring mm-hmm. do you think that's some kind of connection of knowing where your potential as an individual lies i think so and even i mean i i was actually on the board uh of an, an organization in southern california for for photographers for a while a nonprofit, and and one of my friends who founded that organization scott b davis is this incredible kind of desert photographer, but everything he does is kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. It communicates a feeling, you, you know? Um, and yeah, I just, I tend to just kind of, again, maybe it's just my com- comfort and ambiguity, but I, I like things that are very open-ended. Um, and so, yeah, when I go to, when I go to a museum, you know, I, I, I might walk through, 90% of it in 10 minutes and then stand in front of one painting for 45. Mm, <laughs> so it just has to kind of talk to me and, and I, yeah. I let my, I let my intuition guide me. And then, and, and, and the design process is somewhat like this too. I, I let my intuition guide me. And then after, then I'll ask myself, well, why did I like that? Right. Mm-hmm. And then try to pick it apart. But only after I let my intuition guide me to it. Right. Yeah. That, that, the thing you said there, I forget exactly what it was, but this idea that you're a creator of concrete things whose comfort is in ambiguity. True. That's so like oddly contradiction held within the same person. Not really because you're drawn to feeling comfortable in the ambiguity and inspired by the ambiguity, but what you produce is not more ambiguity. No, you love ambiguity no. and you love to create concrete ideas out of the ambiguity. Yeah. I like reach into it and pull something out. Right. That's the, yeah. it's the magic and the rabbit out of the hat moment. <laughs> right. Right. I've never seen that before. Right. Great. I'll, I'll up my bill then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I, this has been really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm always taken back by there's, there's some people you can talk to that, and I was just, someone talk, called me this morning talking about, uh, they were thinking about starting a podcast and I was trying to define why some guests are good and, and some you have to pull more out of. And it, it's always the, the individuals that have looked beyond, uh, beyond the surface of the talent at what they're good at or whatever thing they're doing that they've gotten to be good at they go from good to great when they reach good and get bored and have to realize (laughs) there's got to be more driving than this than just executing you know however many years you were at nike right you you get to a point and you're like if this is going beyond i've got to look internally and i've got to really understand the relationship in me and outside of me and, and what all that connective thing is to, 
to then be able to refocus on this thing and take it to the next level. And there, that, that deep self-introspection and that deep introspection and thought process about everything going on around you, you can get people that are good at executing things, but it seems like when people are really bringing that great thing to the table, the thing that no one's seen before that actually touches people and they're like, whoa, I haven't seen that, but it rings true. Like they've never seen it. How would they know it rings true? Because of the million data points within the thing that you've already thought about that you translated into the thing that then creates that, you know, and that's, thank you for being a good guest. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I think there is something to that sense of like a good solution feels obvious after you see it. Right. You, you would never have known you wanted it. You would never have predicted it. But once you see it, you're like, oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm going for. I think with a lot of my work where you just look at it and you're like, that's the, that's the thing it should be. Um, right. Yeah. There, it's kind yeah, of like for... stumble across it and it's unavoidable once you see it. Right. And I, I do that with my photography, especially yeah. when I was starting out, I'd, I'd shoot a lot just out of reaction. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to go back and look at everything and I'd have to see like going through a museum, there's 90 of them or hundred <laughs> and only 10 of them like speak to me. That's like, it's not just the shooting. It's also the selection and editing out process mm -hmm. that all of a sudden this one speaks to you. Why does it speak to you? I don't know. Think about it. And you just go through it and through it. And I find the ones that really connect to me. I'll put on my phone and I'll look at them like tons of times during the day. And I'll look at it before I go to bed. And it's like my mind thinks about the relationship of the graphic design just on a screen of what was captured and why that's good. And then the next time you're in a situation where those types of elements cross each other again, it's like a key just turns in your head and you see it. And no matter if it's a bike or a desk or a, a radio or a speaker or whatever, there's similarity in its presence and in, in its language. And when that language clicks, you, you kind of see it and you just know like, oh, I've, I've gone through this before. I'll do it again. And it, it just kind of happens. You know it. But anyways, <laughs> I, it's been really nice talking to you. It's, it's, uh, I don't think I've spoken to an industrial designer um, nor someone who sat in the presence of Michael Jordan. So... <laughs> Well, thanks for having me on. It was really awesome talking to you, Trent. I, I think we probably could have, if we had had some coffee or some beers, gone a few more hours. So oh, I appreciate it. You're based in Portland currently, or mm -hmm. that's where you live, yeah. out on the West Coast. How are things out there recently? And everyone's staying safe and like the rest yeah, of the country? We're, we're all, we're doing our best. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I really appreciated talking to you. I, I really appreciate how your mind works. Obviously, you're very um, passionate about what you're doing, and that's just so great to interact and come across people who are just immersed, helplessly immersed in, in what they're doing that, that is really cool. So thank you. Thanks, Trent.